Immigrants are not only working in important sectors of the economy, but they're also generating tax revenue. Immigrants paid about $221 million in state and local taxes in Idaho in 2018. So I think the state owes something to this population that's really doing so much for it. And my clinic is, of course, not even going to come close to meeting the need for immigrant legal services in the state of Idaho because we have a small number of students and the students are learning. But the hope is that the students who graduate from my clinic are, are going to go out and be lawyers. And some of them at least might be immigration lawyers in the state who are serving this really, really important population. Meet Jeffrey Heron, an associate professor of law at the University of Idaho and director of the Immigration, Litigation and Appellate Clinic. Going from books to the courtroom is a big step. And when U of I law students accept an immigration case as part of the law clinic, they become responsible for their client's future. Each case offers unique challenges for the students and provides their clients opportunities for legal representation and advice. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. everyone, my name is Lee Cooper and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Jeff and I talked about the challenges U of I law students have to overcome working in immigration law and the people they've helped. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for being a part of the Vandal Theory today. Can you introduce yourself for everybody? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. It's great to be on the Vandal Theory. My name is Jeff Heron, and I'm the director of the Immigration Clinic at the University of Idaho College of Law. And before we dive into all sorts of questions, what exactly is the Immigration Law Clinic? The Immigration Clinic represents non-citizens in a variety of different types of cases, and I would say that we focus primarily on cases that are complex enough that they can offer students the opportunity to learn a lot of different types of lawyering skills and also give them a chance to take ownership over a case, to think strategically about how to address problems that clients have, and that also are cases that are sometimes high stakes cases that give the students a chance to really make a big difference in someone's life. So your students walking into this, have they had experience doing immigration law? Have they never touched the stuff before? Have they done like active law at this point? Or is this some of their first uh, experience jumping in the ring? Yeah, so that varies. I, I have some students who have a lot of experience and it always impresses me and makes me happy when people go into the crazy field of immigration law and come out still wanting to do more of it because it is sometimes kind of a challenge to do this type of work. I have, for example, one or one student right now who has had a lot of experience doing some different types of immigration law. And then I have other students who really have very little or had very little when they started, I should say. I've got to think that you go from, you know, mock court cases to, oh, this is a real life that they might get sent out of the country if I fail at this. That's a heavy weight to pick up. Yeah, no pressure, right? It is a very different experience than, um, you know, doing like a, a moot court or certainly a different experience than sitting in a classroom. And I think that the first couple years of law school, a lot of what students are doing 
is kind of passively receiving knowledge and and then taking an exam at the end where they show how much they've learned. And, and I think learning how to work for a client in a clinic is a really different experience and it's a very different style of learning. And I think that in some ways it's the best way to learn, right? Because people do learn best when there are real stakes and when there is actually something something on the line. But it can be stressful for sure. So can you walk us through an, an example of a case that your team has worked on and the challenges that the students have had to figure out how to tackle? Sure. One of the cases that we probably spent the most time on during the fall semester was a case involving a woman who had fled a Central American country because of very serious violence that she had been subjected to there. And she came to the United States. It wasn't the first time that she'd come to the United States. She'd actually fled on several occasions and each time had been deported and had experienced increasingly severe violence. The type of thing that, you know, you might see in a movie where it's, you know, a violent and disturbing movie. And this was her life. And so she came here. um, She was in immigration detention and went through what I would describe as a very expedited hearing that did not offer much in the way of due process which is the norm for somebody like her who has a prior removal order, but mm-hmm. didn't really give her a chance to tell her story. She was able on her own to get her case up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Ninth Circuit actually was receptive to her story. And can, can you help, where is the Ninth Circuit in kind of importance? Right. So the Ninth Circuit is one of the circuit courts in the United States that are federal courts that are kind of one step below the Supreme Court. So it's a pretty high court and it's based in San Francisco and has other branches in Seattle and Pasadena. It's the largest court of the circuit courts and covers kind of the Western states in the United States. And she was being held in Tacoma, correct? Exactly. So she was being held in one of um, a fairly large detention center run by a private contractor in Tacoma which is where a lot of folks in this part of the country end up. And the Ninth Circuit appointed us as counsel to represent her through a pro bono program that they have. And once we got the case, we started working on an opening brief to the Ninth Circuit, but we were also troubled by her detention and in particular by the fact that she was separated from four children who were all in the United States. And so right from the start, I appointed two students to work on seeing if there was a way to get her out of detention. And we tried a couple different things, one of which didn't work and the other did. And the really happy part of this story so far is that she was able to rejoin her family and her four children and spend Christmas with them for the first time in, I believe, three years. So she was released in December and was able to rejoin her family and so that that was really exciting for the students who were working on her case. And I'm really proud of the great work that they did to get her out of detention. We also filed an opening brief in the Ninth Circuit, and we're going to go ahead and argue that case at the Ninth Circuit in April. So kind of an interim victory. We still have a ways to go, but really proud of all the students who've done amazing work on her case so far. And I'd say that that's an example of the type of work we do in the more complex cases that we do. And we do a variety of other things too. We work, for example, to to give legal advice to students in the area concerning immigration issues. 
we handle some smaller cases as well. But it's these, I think, big cases that really give students an opportunity to learn a lot of different lawyering skills and to really think strategically about different ways to solve a legal problem. Well, so going back to this case, I, I would think there's quite a few challenges simply physically they're not there with the person that they're working with to possible language issues. I mean, you got COVID-19 having to deal with, like, it seems like all of those would be obstacles in the road. I'm really glad you brought brought those those issues up. I mean, some of the things that you mentioned are always issues in working with detained clients, like the difficulty communicating. And of course, that's exacerbated by the fact, too, that we're in Idaho and our client is located in Tacoma. In the past, we might have gone there to visit with her, but because of COVID-19, that's not very feasible right now. It's not super safe. And of course, that highlights the fact that everyone who's in detention is dealing with a situation that is not safe. People are in close quarters. It's difficult to maintain social distancing. And there have been outbreaks. There have been serious COVID-19 outbreaks at some of the detention centers in the United States. And ultimately, one of the reasons why our client was released was that she was considered by doctors who looked at her to be at serious risk of contracting severe COVID-19. So that was one of the factors that allowed us to actually get her out of detention. Um, And she's fortunate because there are many others who remain in detention. And in terms of working with a detainee, in addition to, to communication, I would also highlight the fact that this is a population of persons who are not only oftentimes traumatized by the things that they've experienced in the countries that they may have fled, but they're also being traumatized by just virtue of being in detention. And so that that presents real challenges, but also real, I think, growth opportunities for students who are working on these really high stakes and really tough cases. For the students, I'm guessing it's not just filling out the requisite paperwork and it goes through the system. Obviously, the way you're talking about this, there is a lot of challenges to you, you said one argument worked, one didn't work. So for the students, what are they learning along the way about the law? Yeah, they're learning a lot about the law. They're learning, I think, some pretty sophisticated things. So for this case, for example, the students needed to, to work with the client to prepare a statement, an affidavit for her that we could use as part of the request that she be released from detention. So working with someone who's detained to prepare a statement that that lays out the client's story and that does that in an effective way that also complies with the kind of conventions that are the norm for legal documents of this type. At the same time, I haven't had another team of students working on the opening brief at the Ninth Circuit, which involved research into a series of legal questions, really complicated legal questions. Um, for example, one of them is the question of whether there's a right to counsel for these type of really expedited proceedings that I mentioned. And that's a novel issue for the Ninth Circuit. That involves looking at other cases in other contexts that are analogous and looking at a statute, analyzing the statutory language, analyzing it in light of the kind of broader legislative context. I think there are a lot of sophisticated lawyering skills involving research and and writing thinking strategically. The students also had to prepare for a bond hearing, which ultimately didn't happen because the court simply denied the bond request initially. But that involved 
mooting uh, a court argument, which if we had gone forward, we would have presented that likely over the phone because of COVID-19. But in, in normal days, that would be something that we would go to court for. Oh, wow. So is her story a relatively common story? Or is this extraordinarily out of character immigration story? Yeah, so everyone's story is unique, right? And that's part of what has made this work fascinating for me for years and what I think is making it fascinating for my students too. Her story is unique in terms of what the challenges she's faced in life and what she's had to cope with. But there are themes in her story that I have seen in many cases over the years. For example, the theme of fleeing persecution in one of the countries in the Northern Triangle of Central America that have become increasingly violent. These are countries that were destabilized by civil wars, and then um, a lot of refugees ended up in the United States. And then the United States deported a lot of those refugees or the children of those refugees. And that essentially led to the exportation of American street gangs into these Central American countries. And what time are we talking about here? So we're talking about a time range from the 1980s through the present, where it's, it's really, it's a fascinating history, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but suffice it to say that we're, we're dealing with a new refugee crisis in this country caused by, in many cases, gang violence that is devastating some of the countries in the Northern Triangle of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And folks are fleeing in large numbers, and oftentimes there are there are regions and portions of those countries that are effectively under the control of criminal gangs and other criminal organizations. So these are gangs that started here and we kicked them out. I, well, not entirely kicked them out, but certainly kicked out some of the members. And then I think in um, these countries that had been devastated by civil war were fertile ground for, mm. for those gangs. And so the gangs like MS-13, for example. So that theme, I think, is common. Another theme that is common is the very expedited process for deporting a lot of people in the United States today. I think a majority of folks who are deported today are deported through one of several different types of expedited processes where they don't even get to go in front of a judge or hardly get to go in front of a judge at all. That kind of theme of a lack of due process for people who, whose lives are at risk is another, another thing that's common as well. Interesting. It's interesting. It's it's kind of sad too. Yeah. You know, we were able to get involved and make a difference in this case, but for every every case in which there's a lawyer who's making a difference, there are many, many cases where folks don't have the opportunity to have a lawyer. When it sounds like your students are going to be able to look at this case start to finish, which has to be nice for them. I hope so. I think they're certainly going to see the appellate process through and they're able to see the detention process through. If we win, the case will likely be sent back for another hearing, and that could end up being after some of my students right now graduate. I would think it's nice, though, from an education standpoint to be able to see the steps that it takes and really dive in deep to one of these. That's, I think, the best position to be in from a pedagogical perspective. I think that the students gain the most from a case when they're able to take it at the start and really immerse themselves in it and, and see it through from start to finish, as you said. And I think in that situation, students 
really feel a sense of ownership over the case. And I think that's the best way for them to learn. It's not always possible to do a case like that because some of these cases go on for years and years. And I think that there is something to be gained too from working on a case that is a bigger case that's been ongoing for a period of time. So let's talk a slightly different track. The Immigration Law Clinic is obviously in Idaho. Why is it so important to have a clinic like that in Idaho? I mean, our border touches Canada, not Mexico. Why is it so important to have this clinic here? Yeah, so so Idaho is a growing immigrant population, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that it's a border state because a lot of people don't necessarily think about that, but that has an impact as well. But even leaving that aside, I think that there's a, a growing population of immigrants in the state, oftentimes working in in the state's growing and very vibrant kind of new agricultural economy. For example, you know, the Magic Valley of South Central Idaho has a growing dairy industry and the vast majority of those who are working in that industry, I think, are are foreign-born individuals. So I think this is a part of the state's economy that's generating enormous resources for, for the people in the state. And immigrants are not, not only working in important sectors of the economy, but they're also generating tax revenue. Immigrants paid about $221 million in state and local taxes in Idaho in 2018. So I think the state owes something to this population that's really doing so much for it. And my clinic is, of course, not even going to come close to meeting the need for immigrant legal services in the state of Idaho because we have a small number of students and the students are learning. But the hope is that the students who graduate from my clinic are, are going to go out and be lawyers. And some of them at least might be immigration lawyers in the state who are serving this really, really important population. Well, and you said earlier, I mean, you know, working with this community in especially the Magic Valley and stuff is part of what you do, but part of your time is spent actually working with U of I students, and and I know you you have also worked with WSU students. What generally do you help them with? Yes, a variety of different issues. I mean, folks, there sometimes are international students who have questions about their options and about their visas, but there are there are also students who who might not have documentation or might have DACA, which is a type of nebulous status that according to the federal government, it's not even truly an immigration status, but it's essentially a form of prosecutorial discretion where the government has informed people that they're not going to deport them, that they'll give them a deportation reprieve um, and work permits. And so we have students who are kind of in that status, and sometimes we help them renew their status or in recent, more recently after Biden has been elected, it's become clear that DACA has a future. That wasn't totally clear under the Trump administration because President Trump, after initially sort of vacillating about what he was going to do concerning DACA, ended up attempting to eliminate it. And so recently we've had some renewed interest in that and some folks who want to pursue DACA. I would think there's probably more of these stories than I would guess, not just in students, but throughout Idaho, there's probably more of these stories that I need to be aware of. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you meet a person, you you have no idea oftentimes what that person's story is. And I have worked with many clients over, over the years who have sometimes fled trauma, fled violence, 
or who are coping with enormous challenges due to a lack of status. And everyone in life has their set of problems that they're dealing with all the time. And I think that immigrants, though, oftentimes have a lot more on their plate than those who have citizenship and who take for granted their ability to live here and stay here. And so for me, working with folks who are dealing with these kinds of serious challenges has been really rewarding. It's been really meaningful to kind of open my eyes to how much, you know, many people have to cope with in life. And I've been glad in a small number of those cases that my students and I were able to provide some help. So if we do have some listeners who are interested in getting hold of the clinic, how's the best way for them to go about doing that? Yeah, so our our website has, I think, the phone number um, that you can call and also an email address. And that's probably the best way ultimately to reach out. Okay. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. I hadn't known anything about the law clinic before, so thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Lee. If you found the intricacies of Jeff's work with the Immigration Law Clinic interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. As an economics and international studies student, Nicole Hanlon created a database on manufacturers in Idaho, and the Idaho Manufacturing Alliance will build an app using the database to give the state's manufacturers a way to connect. College of Agricultural and Life Sciences Emeritus Distinguished Professor Ron Hardy has co-authored a new study as a follow-up to one from 2000 that warned of the environmental impact of fish farms depleting wild fish stocks. The new study finds that fish farming has improved, with more farmed fish being fed plants, like soy. A student team earned $10,000 for its first place win during the 2020 Hacking for Home Building competition. The team worked with construction professionals to develop a steel frame that sits between the wall studs and floor joists of a structure and allows for easy utility access through a collapsible or detachable baseboard. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. We hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, if you'd like more details about the Immigration Law Clinic. While you're there, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. I would really love it if you'd rate and review us, too. We hope you'll let any friends and family interested in science and research know about the podcast. Help us tell our story. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.